Um, we're going to be reading from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And if you have one of the black Bibles from the back, that can be found on page 983. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, and we are reading God's word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. Thank you. You may be seated. How many of you would say that you, uh, you like to read or watch biographies? Okay, so like just stories of people's lives and what they did and how they experienced things. Biographies are richly helpful because you realize, oh wow, I'm not the first person that's ever experienced this. And so if you can read good biographies and kind of get connected uh, with, with history, um, that's a very helpful thing. But there, and, and some have said that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories of Jesus, are kind of like biographies of Jesus. And so we get to know who Jesus is as we read these gospels. But there's one major difference between the average biography that you'll read and the gospels. Well, there's at least one. You know, another would be that it, one is God's word, the other is just written by people. But, but, but one major difference that is relevant to specifically today is this. In the gospels, the writers spend a disproportionate amount of time talking about how Jesus died. Whereas when you read a biography, it's almost completely filled with their life, what they did, where they went, what they accomplished, and then there's usually just a bit at the end about how they died, unless they died in a uniquely interesting way or were assassinated or something like that. But for the most part, it just focuses on their life. But the Gospels focus a lot on Jesus' death. There's a lot of uh, space and words and paragraphs given to the last week of Jesus' life, and, and especially a disproportionate amount to the last like 48 hours of his life. We know very little, actually, about Jesus' early life. Uh, Matthew and Luke give us accounts of Jesus' birth. Uh, Luke gives us a little bit of information about, um, you know, kind of what he was like as an as like early teenager, but we, we don't know much else. What did Jesus do when he was 6, 7, 8, 18, 19, 24? We don't know. We just have like the very beginning, a tiny little snapshot, and then Jesus bursts on the scene, 30. We get a good chunk of his life, but then a lot of the gospels focused on his death. Why? I mean, the gospels writers could, could write all kinds of stuff. They had access to 
to Mary, at least it seems that Luke did, it seems that he probably interviewed her, and he could have asked all kinds of questions and included all sorts of information that he doesn't include about Jesus' early life. They focus a lot on the death. Why? Well, the reason is because the death of Jesus is so important. They devote a lot of space. One of the ways you see in the Bible what they emphasize, what they emphasize is emphasized by how much space they give to it or how often it's repeated. And in the Gospels, we have four accounts of Jesus, all of which emphasize his death. So today we study as important a thing as you could ever study, the cross of Jesus Christ. We're in this series called Doctrine, where we've been studying, uh, it's a 13-week series over the course of the summer. We began just with who God is and what he's done in creation and creating people in the image of God and and how humanity has plunged into sin and how God is making that right. And so it's just been really the true history of the world so that you can try to have a, a biblical set of glasses to look at the world through. That's what this series has been about. And right here in the middle, we've hit the core of our doctrine. The core reality of what we believe as people who would call themselves Christians. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So last week we talked about the life of Jesus. This reality as it says in Colossians 1.19, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That Jesus uh, took on flesh and dwelt among us as a full human being. The life of Jesus. Today we focus on the cross, the death of Jesus. Next week, we look at the resurrection of Jesus. All of these are intertwined and interconnected. If you overemphasize one at the expense of the others, it's a problem. But right here in this idea of the cross, so much happens that's significant for us as people who want to know God at the cross. This is such a key idea. There's a lot of different things that the cross did that we aren't going to be able to talk about today. But what we want to focus on specifically today is not primarily what happened on the cross in terms of getting the direct chronology and the details and all the physical suffering, though we could talk about that. We could talk about how Jesus was in so much agony before that he was sweating drops of blood and how his friends betrayed him and all the torture. And we, could, we could go into all of those things that he experienced on the cross. And all of those would be worth talking about. But instead, we're going to focus specifically today on what was accomplished at the cross. What did Jesus get done at the cross? As we look at really this this storyline of the true history of the world, how does the cross specifically play in to what God is doing in this arc of history? That's what we're going to look at, and specifically at how the cross applies to us. Now, there are some of you I know here today who this is a fairly new experience to you. Maybe this is your first time at church or your second or third time at church, or maybe it's been a long time. Uh, maybe you're not all that familiar with the Bible. Maybe you're not all that familiar with Christianity. And so this today for you is, is a particularly important thing for you to get. This is central to what we believe. Now, for those of you who already would, would say that you're Christians, or at least you're very familiar in church and you've heard this a lot of different times, here's the challenge. We talk about the cross so much that there's a sense in which you kind of already know everything I'm going to say, right? It's kind of like, how long is he going to go? I I mean, I feel like I've heard this a hundred times. So here's what we want to do today. We want to pray. This is what I've been praying. We want to pray specifically that God would allow us to see this with fresh eyes, that God would allow us to really be um, in awe of what he's done. So let's just take a moment. 
and pray for that now. Father, um, we thank you for what you accomplished in your son on the cross. And we pray that that would um, delight us, that it would thrill us, that it would be um, something we could see and comprehend in a fresh and powerful way. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Colossians 1 is a great place to go, not necessarily to understand all the chronology of what happened on the cross, but to understand the implications of it. Uh, In the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul is writing to this church at at Colossae, and he's specifically trying to help them see that believing in Jesus is enough. That Jesus is sufficient for everything they need. And so he's focusing a lot on Jesus and on who he is and on what he's done. And so uh, we get this just incredible passage that begins in verse 15. And uh, the first few verses, we're not going to unpack them all, but where it's talking about Jesus being the image of God, the firstborn of all creation, creating everything. He's before all things. In him all things hold together. They're all created for him. This really is just a great summary of everything we've talked about. That God has existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That that Jesus existed as the Son of God and always has. That he became flesh. It said, as we said, verse 19, in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He dwelt among us. And then what did he do? That's what we talk about today. Here's the big idea for today. We're going to put this on the screen. If you're kind of jotting things down or whatever, here's the big idea. Is that the cross and resurrection of Jesus defeats or defeat, Satan, sin, and death on both the cosmic and personal levels. The death and resurrection of Jesus defeat our three biggest enemies, Satan, the enemy of the world, the devil, the evil one, sin, the thing that controls so much of our attitude in our lives and the structures and systems in our world, and death. And the cross and resurrection of Jesus defeat all three of those things on both the cosmic and the personal levels. So big picture, this is a huge win for Jesus. Small picture in terms of each of our individual lives, this is huge. Now we're going to talk specifically about the resurrection next week. And, and, and the resurrection is key as it relates to overcoming death. Today we probably are going to focus more on this issue of how the cross defeats Satan and sin on both the cosmic and personal level. So let's look first at the cosmic level. This is what Paul talks about in uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. If you have a Bible there, make sure you're looking at it here. We're going to really try to dig into this text and, and look at these words. Verse 19 said, In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So what did Jesus do to all things on the cross? What has he done? He's reconciling it. Reconcile. What does that word mean? Well, Webster defines it as to restore to friendship or harmony. You reconcile the factions. When you hear the word reconcile, you assume there has been what? Previous to that, there had been conflict, difficulty, hostility, anger, if someone says to you, oh, I'm so just thanking God because I've been praying for them and Jim and Mary are reconciled. Do you assume that Jim and Mary must have been doing great before they were reconciled? No, you assume there, there was hostility. That's why at the end of verse 20 it says making peace by the blood of his cross. So there was hostility 
in all of creation, all the creation that Jesus had been so integral in making and creating, as we saw in verses 15 and 16, all of creation is hostile to God. Now, this isn't news for you if you've been here for part of this series. Uh, When we looked at the fall and we studied Genesis 3, uh, Matthew was up here and he was teaching. And he was specifically talking about how when Adam and Eve plunged humanity into sin, all kinds of alienation happened in the world. He talked about how, and he he drew, do you remember he drew four circles? Uh, and, And those four circles, at the center was the idea that you're alienated from God. That, that before the fall into sin, Adam and Eve had this great relationship with God. God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, kind of, I mean, just this, this really neat, close, hard to even imagine kind of relationship. And they're alienated from that because they disobeyed God. And we talked about how they were alienated from themselves. They started to hide, right? They, they got fig leaves to cover themselves. They all of a sudden had this self-awareness and shame that they were naked that they didn't have before. And, and so we talked about how sin even just alienates you. You don't always even know, who, who am I and, and what's wrong with me? And, and, and sin alienates you even from yourself, from who you are. And, and we talked in that next circle about how, about how sin alienates us from each other. We blame and we fight and we argue and no, it's your fault, no, it's yours, and, and all this tension. And that, that's on display, you know, from the smallest of, of sibling relationships to nations at war with each other, right? And then that biggest circle that Matthew talked about was creation. The idea that all of creation was plunged into sin. And so um, there's thorns and there's thistles. And the creation, uh, the scripture says, is, is groaning, it's longing for this time when it will all be made new, when it will all be restored. When, when, here's, here's what the creation's longing for. The time when it will be reconciled to God. When creation itself, the mountains and the sky and the canyons and the dirt will be as it was when God created it. It's long, there's a sense of longing for that. By the way, can you imagine Hawaii renewed? Right? I mean, like I can imagine Yuma renewed, you know? <laughs> but like there's some of these places, I mean, what's Mount Everest look like renewed? Incredible. And, and so, so this is a humongous claim, is that Jesus, by his death on the cross, right? Because that's what it says at the very end, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's specifically the blood of Jesus' cross that is reconciling all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. Now, it doesn't feel particularly reconciled, does it? And so here's where we get into this key idea. Uh, Theologians would maybe call this the idea of already and not yet. The idea that Jesus Christ has already done this. The, The victory was decisive, but it's not quite yet in its fullness. Few examples would be if you look at World War II. Uh, D Day is considered really the day that the war was won. It was decided then. Now there were still things to happen and, and, and all sorts of stuff that happened until V Day, right? V Day was kind of the official ending of it. But the decisive moment was D Day. Same thing here. Jesus on his cross gave the decisive moment, and yet it's not yet totally fulfilled. We wait for him to return for that to happen. 
Another example um, would be from the Tour de France. Matthew is very into the Tour de France. It ends today. I know all of you were, were, are so sad that it ends today because you've been following it so closely. And I don't even know what started. Um, my kids were over at uh, the Brazeltons the other day, and every time Matthew was watching the Tour de France, Abby ran out of the room with her ears, you know, covered. And, and he said, did you put her up to that? And I said, no, she's just brilliant. <laughs> but Matthew was telling me about the Tour de France. Today's the last day. The, the official winner will be crowned today. But the war, the battle for the Tour de France, was won yesterday. In fact, they call it, what is it, Matthew? What was yesterday? The penultimate stage. The, pen, the penultimate stage. The judgment day. So yesterday was the judgment day. Today they call the glory stage. Where they all ride around in Paris and, you know, drink champagne. And, I mean, this is not like heavy-duty cycling going on today. Like, because it's been won. The race has been won. And what Jesus did on his cross was he endured judgment day. And declared the decisive victory. And then the day will come when he will, on a white horse, come down and finish the deal. And that all was purchased. That all was initiated by the blood of Jesus' cross. This has huge implications. This gives us a hope of a, of a real, tangible world renewed. I, I, was, I was meeting this week with a, with a new friend and, and talking through the gospel and explaining this story of all that God has done. And when we got to this part of restoration, um, as we were talking, she said, is that really in the Bible? I said, yeah. And it was just this sweet moment together where we were like, gosh, God is good. Look at what he's doing. This isn't just like you, you die and go to heaven into some who knows what it is and you're kind of like a ghost and there's harps and this is this is the guarantee that God will undo all that was done in the fall huge huge so God does this through the cross on the cosmic level but he also does it on the personal level and this is the part that the Bible focuses probably a bit more on and for sure the part that Paul focuses his attention on next here in Colossians 1 so go back to Colossians 1 And uh, beginning in verse 21, what we see is that Jesus' death defeats Satan and sin at the personal level. The personal. So it's great that, man, this is happening cosmically, and this is happening in the whole world, and God's going to do this. But this can happen for you, is what he's going to turn his attention to. He says, and you. So let's describe, who, who, who are you? Who are you? Who are you, especially apart from this reality of the cross? Well, Paul's going to describe it here in verse 21. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. All right, so how does God see you apart from his cross? Did you see it there? There were three things. Alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Those get progressively worse, don't they? I mean, alienated you just maybe just this sense or, or this, this reality that you're sort of separated. Hostility in mind means like we're separated and I don't like you. Doing evil deeds is like I'm going to do whatever hurts you. And, and what the scripture here declares is that all of us are on that spectrum somewhere. That, that describes everybody. 
everybody, because sin is in the world and because we all want what Adam and Eve wanted, which was to be a God unto themselves, we want that. We live for ourselves and therefore we are at war with God. Some of us only experience in that alienation kind of faith where you just don't, you don't even think about God. He's not really on your radar. There's not like this active, God, I hate you kind of thing. There's just this, you sense that just stuff in your world is broken. You know what that is? That's alienation from God. And then we experience this at all different levels. But look at how intently the scripture describes this. And think, this is talking about you and me. This is not talking about some group elsewhere, some other group of you. This is talking about us. Alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Really? Evil deeds? Evil? I mean, I... I've done some bad stuff, and, you know, I'd, you know, boys will be boys, and, you know, everyone in college was doing it, and evil? Yeah, that's what the Bible says, evil. The scripture in uh, Proverbs 6 declares some things that God hates. This is maybe an important passage to know, is what are some things that God hates? Uh, obviously, we, we are totally thrilled about the love of God and the grace of God and the goodness of God, but there are things that God hates. And in Proverbs 6, he describes seven things. It says there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, as if to say there are six. No, 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 wait, there's seven. And uh, this is obviously not a comprehensive list, but we see a lot of different things. And my guess is here that all of us are at least 50% pretty clearly on this list, if not 100. Here's the first thing God hates. Haughty eyes. Haughty just means proud arrogant think of yourself more highly than you should think of yourself as sort of a cut above everybody it's the idea of looking down your nose at people pride every one of us has pride don't we i mean even if you're like a total loser you're at least like i'm not as bad as that guy right all of us have pride It seeps deep within us. No matter how much battle you try to do on it, it is there. Haughty eyes. God hates that. God wants our eyes and our affections to be focused on him. That he is great. That he is worthy. And instead it focuses on us. Here's another thing God hates is a lying tongue. Ever lie? Ever not tell the truth? Ever, uh, maybe not a lie, but I just exaggerated a little bit just to make it funnier. I'm a preacher. I never do that. The lying tongue. We're, we're all guilty, right? We go on and on to the depths of these things. God hates hands that shed innocent blood. The idea of just sort of this mercilessness on people. God hates a heart that devises wicked plans. Just, just kind of calculating, inventing. There's a place in, I think, Romans where it says they're inventors of evil. God hates that. Feet that make haste to run to evil. So rather than, than looking for a way to run after God, looking after a way to run in a way of wisdom and obedience, it's saying, what's every opportunity that I have to do what I want to do? Haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord 
among brothers. God hates that. that that's, a, that's an interesting one. All, hands that shed innocent blood. Okay, I don't do that. One who sows discord among brothers. You're the instigator. You're the gossiper. You're the slanderer. Did you hear about what she did? Here's how, here's how church people do it. We really need to be praying for these people. It is, they've been going through, and, and, and you're not doing that out of a heart of compassion. You're doing it to sow discord. God hates that. Listen, the, the point in here is not to go into all the nuances of what all these possible things mean, but, but this is to say these are things that God hates, and all of us have done at least some of these things, if not all of them. So, so if we were to go into the courtroom and stand before God the judge, what's the verdict? What is it? Everybody. What is it? It's guilty. Right? Is there any, well, God, but you don't understand. He's going, I know your thoughts. I know your motives. I know your words before you speak them. Eh, guilty. I mean, it's just you're guilty. You got no hope apart from God intervening. None. Because you're alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And all of us are. But here's what God has done. Here's why the cross is so key. Is he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death those who were this way. Uh, those of us who were alienated and hostile. He's reconciled us. Now there's friendship. Now there's harmony. Now there's relationship. He has done this in his body of flesh by his death. Why? What was he trying to do? What was he trying to accomplish through that? Paul continues. He says at the end of verse 22, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Notice he gives three qualities of what you were like before. Alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And now he gives three new things. Holy, blameless, above reproach before him. Here's part of what makes the cross so significant. Is that whole list of things that all of us are guilty, and we could go through all kinds of other lists. The Bible has lots of lists of sins. Lots of them. And we go through all of them, and, and every time when we get to the what's the answer in the courtroom of heaven, we'd all say guilty. Every time. And on the cross, Jesus Christ, who was not guilty, he was without sin, the scripture says. When it came time even to be killed, Pilate said, I found nothing wrong in this man. And so Jesus, the innocent one, receives the punishment on the cross that we deserve as the guilty ones. He is treated as though he had been alienated from God. And in fact, on the cross, he says, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? He is literally alienated from his father on the cross. He's treated as though he was an enemy of God. So that we, the real enemies, could be treated as Jesus deserved, holy and blameless and above reproach. Access to God. Connection with God. Relationship with God. The ability to talk to God. So instead of going to God and having to, to cower in fear, we could go to God in humble boldness. This is what Jesus has done. That's what reconciliation is. Listen, some of you still live. Reconciliation means 
to be reconciled as friends. Some of you, even though you would say you believe in Jesus, you still live as if you're just a slave of Jesus and not his friend. Now, for sure, we are servants of Christ. And Paul, throughout his letter, says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ, a slave of Christ. But there's also a friendship. And that's possible because Jesus' death defeats Satan, defeats sin. All all of those things we looked at, those are all satanic attitudes. And he defeats those through his blood on the cross. This means there's freedom. This means there's joy. This means that the weight of our sin and our wrongdoing and our shame is, is, is gone. Jesus has taken it. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why this is such a great thing. Now, who does this apply to? So before, he'd be talking about he reconciled all things to himself, the cosmic level. What about the personal? Who does that really apply to? Does that just apply to everybody? Has God reconciled everyone to himself in this we're all friends now, we all love each other kind of way? Is that what God's done? No. The Bible, has, the Bible says that God has done this to those who have faith. And so that's why Paul continues in verse 23. This is key. All of this is true of you. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. If, it's a big word, if. If indeed you continue in the faith. So if you're to continue in the faith, that means you must have faith. That means that this relationship, if it's going to continue by faith, must have started by faith. So we need to talk a moment about what this means to be in this relationship by faith. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, all of this blessing is yours if indeed you continue to go to church, if indeed you give a lot of money, if indeed you do all these nice things. It says, if you continue in the faith. So I want to talk for just a moment for those of you who are are new to Christianity new to understanding the Bible, or perhaps you're not new to it, but, but you would acknowledge or say, at this point in time, I'm not a Christian. Maybe you're thinking about it, maybe you're not. But I want to speak directly to you for just a moment. This relationship with God is possible only, only through faith in Jesus. Only through trusting in Jesus. That's what faith is. It's trusting. It's, it's putting your hope in him. It's saying, God, uh, apart from you, I'm alienated. I'm, I'm hostile. I, I'm doing evil deeds. But, but Jesus didn't. And his death was enough for me. And I will trust in that. I will believe in that. If you will believe in that, you can be reconciled to God. You could, you could be reconciled to God in this moment. My belief is that there are some of you here today that God is drawing on you and the circumstances of your life have you here in this moment in such a way that you would cry out to him in faith. You would trust him with your heart. And that's the only way to relate to God is by faith. This is the overwhelming message of the Bible. Jesus taught this in John chapter 6. He said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. What is it? It's looking to the Son, believing in Him. It's faith, it's trust, it's belief. Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified just means you're made right with God. It's a legal term. That means when you go into the courtroom of heaven, you are declared not guilty because Jesus was declared guilty for you. So how, how do you get this justification? How do you get made right with God? By faith. And that gives you peace with God. Relationship, again, Galatians 2 says the same idea. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Listen, if you have this guilty record against you of all these bad, evil, hostile, proud, arrogant things that you've done in your life, no amount of good things is going to overcome that. When you stand before God, he still has to say, guilty, you did all that stuff. And so it's by trusting in Jesus, putting your faith in Jesus and in his perfect record that you can be made right with him. Is God calling you to to enter into that relationship now? Is he offering you now that gift of faith? That gift of himself so that you could be reconciled to God? So you could say, I don't, I don't know where I've been going or what I've been doing, but, but I've been alienated from God and I, and I know he's, he's working in my life. He's drawing me now. Is that you? Respond to him today. Pray. What, what, what's on your heart? Tell him. And invite him to have reign over your life. Trust in him. I want to give you a very practical way to, just to respond to that if you want to do that. If All of you, everybody right now, grab your program and grab your white connection card. And uh, on the back of it, you'll see there's some next steps you can take. Some of these have to do with events and things you can sign up for. Um, but if, if you're here today... And you're sensing that God is, maybe for the first time, drawing you to himself, to trust in him. And you're ready to make that commitment to follow him. Will you mark this box on the back that says, I am making a commitment to trust in Jesus to save me from my sin? Now listen, just to be really clear here, marking this box does diddly squat for you, other than helping us know and being able to get in touch with you and help you grow in your faith. So marking this box doesn't make you a Christian at all. It's the faith in Jesus that allows you to be saved from your sin. But mark the box so that we can know and we can follow up and we can encourage you. Continue in the faith, it says. If indeed you continue in the faith. So you've got to have faith, so that's how you get faith. But then we're called to continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Paul here is cluing us into something. And this is true. I found this incredibly to be true in my life as a follower of Jesus. I've followed Jesus since I was 17. And inevitably, there is a tendency in my heart to shift my hope away from Jesus, and on to other things. Now listen, let's be clear here. I'm not talking about, um, could I pass the test that said, how do you go to heaven, hope in Jesus, faith in Jesus. I, I could pass that test. I'm talking about functional hope. 
like the kind of thing that drives your emotions and your passion and your desire and your sense of who you are, right? The, the thing that, that is controlling you on any given moment, the functional hope, that's what I'm talking about. And that functional hope, when you wake up every morning, seems to default to the original program settings, which are hoping not in what Jesus has done, but hoping in yourself. That's how it is for me. And so I want to take a moment here and, and exhort, especially those of you now who would say, I am a follower of Jesus. I am trying to, to, to trust him and, and to have a relationship with him. I've had a, a moment where, where I've put my hope in him. And I want to warn you, don't shift from it. There are all these things that would tempt you to drift. And, and even that word shift has this sort of subtle kind of feel to it, right? This isn't a, a yanking away from it. It's, it's a drift. This is one of the reasons why we need each other. We need people. We need people to encourage us and to help us and say, I, I lovingly, I, I see you drifting. I want to help. But don't shift from the hope of the gospel. There's a lot of things that, that as followers of Jesus, our hope could shift to that are good things, but they're not good enough to put our hope in it. So here would be a few. Is your hope shifted to your generosity? Here's a, here's a good indicator. Let, let, let me say this at the outset here. Here's a good way to, to tell where your functional hope is. If you were to have five minutes alone to pray, what would give you the confidence that you could boldly ask God for anything you wanted? Whatever it is that would give you that confidence, that's your functional hope. Okay? So if your functional hope is in your generosity, how generous you are with your time and your, your money, and there would be functionally in you this sense that, well, God, look at all the things I've given. Of, well, I haven't, I haven't been very generous with my time lately. I can't boldly approach him very well. You're, in that case, your hope is shifting. Some of us, our hope shifts to our devotion, how committed we are to reading the Bible and attending church and serving. And so if you've had a week where you've been very faithful and very devoted and, and you've, you've memorized the verses you wanted to memorize, all those things, then you will go before God eager. Oh God, I'm so happy to talk to you. I've memorized my verse this week. Your hopes in that, your hopes in your devotion. It's not I'm so excited to know you and I can boldly approach your throne because of what Jesus has done for me. And our hope just shifts to these subtle things. Maybe your hope has shifted to your decision making. Your ability to navigate life circumstances. And I make good decisions. I'm not like, man, did, can you believe they did that? What a, what a moron. But man, not me. I'm, I'm making decisions. They're right. Maybe your hope has shifted to your child rearing. Man, God, the kids are doing good. I've, uh, man, I've been faithful with them this week. I have boldness. Oh, God, they're not doing so good. I know you've called me to raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and I'm screwing up, and I can't come before you. Is that what it is? It, one of the ways to see this is how you... How you how your heart attitude responds to other people's kids that aren't meeting your standards. And, and you're like the Pharisee who's praying, God, thank you that my kids aren't like those demons. Thank you that my kid's not running around like a crazy person like that kid. Right? And you're, especially, listen, moms, 
Molly and I talk enough about what it's like to be a mom. I don't know what it's like to be a mom, but we talk a lot about this world. It's, you're immersed in that world. And it's very, very hard for your identity, your sense of hope, your sense of meaning to not shift into that thing. Just like gentlemen, it's the same thing with your work. Are you working hard? Are you doing a good job? Your sense of identity, your sense of value, if it's coming from that, your hope has shifted. Your functional hope has shifted from the gospel to that. Hope shifted to your correct thinking and and you have the right doctrine and you believe the right things about the right different realities in the world and the right truths from the Bible and, and you have the right political views. You're not like those, gosh, those crazy Tea Party conservatives and, man, those just nutso liberals and, and your identity becomes that. Tim Keller has wisely said, you don't demonize something until you idolize something else first. And if you're demonizing the right or left, it's probably because you've idolized something and your functional hope is not in Jesus. All of this is just this hope shifting to your performance. And in all these, notice the word I've said, to your, your, what this is, this is shifting to you. Your hope is becoming in you and your ability to do all the things that you feel like you wish you could do. It's all this stuff where you're going, that's how I know I'm somebody. That's how I know God loves me. That's how I know I matter. If it's based on you, Your hope has shifted. And for Christians, this is especially dangerous because every week we get up here and tell you all these things you should do. And you know all the stuff you're supposed to do if you're a follower of Jesus. You're supposed to be in church. You're supposed to give sacrificially. You're supposed to serve. You're supposed to be in community. You're supposed to have enough availability to really care for someone in pain. You're supposed to share the gospel with those who are perishing. You're supposed to love the poor. (sighs) Right? Here's the thing. Jesus did all of that perfectly for you. So don't put your hope in your ability to do it. Put your hope in him and then do your best out of joy and freedom, not because you have to. See, there's two ways to avoid a real encounter with Jesus. One is by just flagrantly going into sin, by being very, very bad. Some people really like to avoid Jesus this way. If I just go like on a binge of some kind, then I will be far away from God, kind of a prodigal son sort of idea. Very, very bad. Here's the other way, though, to avoid God. Here's the other way to avoid a closeness with God. Be very very good. Be so good that you don't really even need God anymore. Because you're just a really good person. John Gerstner says this, the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works. It's your your righteousness, your self-righteousness. And so if you've got that card and you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to contemplate this and I want to challenge you to make this decision today. Again, don't do this just because it's there. You need to pray, pray through this. 
and, and ask God to reveal anything. But I want to challenge you to repent of your righteousness. Repent of your good works. And go to the Lord and say, God, nothing I've done, as good as it is for me, and as healthy as it is for my growth, none of it merits anything before you. And, rep- and I repent of even my good deeds, because even my good deeds aren't good enough. And I turn to Jesus. If you want to make that commitment, you can mark on that card. And again, this is all about your heart. It's not what you put on the card. I want to give you a chance to respond. If our hope will maintain itself in the gospel, if we will keep our hope on Jesus, we will be joyful people. We will be secure people, not wondering, what does everybody think about me all the time? We will be thankful people, boasting in him and not in ourselves. And that will lead us to be humble people. Not not like the false humility, like, oh, I just want to talk to you about how humble I am. You know what real humility is? It's self-forgetfulness. You don't even think about it. If you're keeping track of how humble you are, that's probably not humility, right? But this will just come out as you forget yourself because your attention's on, on Him. It will lead you to love. Not to get anything in return, but just because you love this, this whole idea of setting your hope here, it changes everything. Through his cross and resurrection, Jesus Christ defeated Satan's sin and death on the cosmic level. And he's made it available on the personal level. If you'll receive it. Let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you for the good news of the cross. And uh, we're excited to look forward even to next week um, at the truth of the resurrection, that not only have you overcome Satan and sin, but you've overcome death, that there is a hope that we now live in. And so we thank you for that. And we pray that you would be um, the hero of our story, that you would be our hope, that we would not avoid you by being very bad and that we would not avoid you by being very good, but that we would realize that we are bad that Jesus has been good and that that would reorient our whole lives. We pray that in Jesus' name.